For this moment, I want to begin about a week ago with Palm Sunday, and which is known as Jesus's entrance into Jerusalem, as the Christian scriptures tell us. From the book of Zechariah, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. From the book of John, we hear, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took the branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So here we are. Here we are. We start the lead up into this moment with the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem in all of the welcome and the enthusiasm and the greeting with the palms, but also in the riding of the donkey in defiance and tweaking the nose of the empire to say that the king can come on the humblest of creatures. Here we are with this story that began with a child celebrated at his birth, marked by the cosmos with a guiding star whose parents were so humble that they took shelter in a barn, who had wise people, royalty, attend his birth, and then skirted around going back to the empire because they knew how precious this child was. And this child grows into a man, a teacher, as well as a carpenter, performing miracles of healing, feeding the people when there was no food, teaching lessons of morality again in living into the spirit of things, not just the rigors, and making people think about their place in society. He turned the value of wealth itself on its head, and proclaimed who would ultimately inherit the world. I'm going to give you a hint. It wasn't the people with money and power. So here he is, this Jesus, entering Jerusalem, coming to make good trouble. And here we are a week later, and he has been arrested and executed. And here we are, trying to make sense of the story that also says that the stone was rolled away and that Jesus was no longer there in the tomb to be found. When I come to the moment of considering Easter, I think for me it's one of those annual touchstones, if you will. It is such a powerful story. The powerful story of the triumph of death, of the triumph of life over death in so many ways, of subverting expectations, of challenging 
what was status quo. And I cannot help but ask, as we come to another Easter and then go beyond it, what will be different this year? What will change in my own heart and actions? What will change in our hearts and our actions as a result of this flipping the tables? In this suffering, in this triumph, in this death, what happens then? Unitarian Universalism, I will offer, comes directly from the Protestant faith, not just with our structure of hymns and uh, sermon and worship, but more from our theology. The earliest teachings of what became the Christian church included that there is one God, that, teacher, that Jesus was not divine or fully divine, and that Jesus' sacrifice was um, a gesture of solidarity for all of us to recognize how we all suffer in managing our mortal, finite lives. And these teachings keep coming back in Western human history over all of these thousands of years. No matter what was made official, what was officially said, this is the, what's going to be taught, no matter how much uh, these remarkable, inclusive ideas were kept popping up, uh, no matter the oppression, they kept showing up and they have kept been coming down to us in the course of our history. So in this moment, I invite us to spend time with one of these more transformational stories of our past and our present and our culture and indeed the theology of this time and this faith. Because I'll tell you, my favorite stories of all the Jesus stories is when he subverts expectations. And not just because it's kind of fun to mess with the system, right? Because amen, it's fun to mess with the system, right? Just because sometimes. But because that disruption can lead to insight, can lead to truth, can lead to opportunity. But it also can lead to more compassion, more recognizing how much we are, in fact, each other's neighbors. It can lead to somebody, maybe even ourselves, being made more whole and more able to live with hope, even amidst all the struggles. Jesus uh, flipping, he goes on after Palm Sunday, he goes to the temple uh, where there's an enormous amount of money changing and buying of selling of materials so that one can have the right things to take to the temple to offer sacrifice and so on. And he is enraged by what he has observing as the commercialization and commodification of faith and of ritual that is meant to be a source of comfort, that is meant to be a strength of the people. We're not, they, you know, the, they were not to make the temple, uh, you don't build a temple, you don't build a sacred structure for its own glory, for its own uh, monetary design, but to locate sacredness to make the ineffable more tangible for mere mortals. But, but in this observance, in this practice, it was turned into a source of profit rather than prayer. And so Jesus flips the table and said, this is not how this temple should be. 
And I'll offer, it is in that moment a bit of a violent act. It is really a powerful and violent act. And we'll have another sermon about Jesus' anger at another time. That one I'm looking forward to. But much more prevalent are the stories of where he's flipping the expectations in the society and in the law. And I want to give one example of this in particular. And I take this from uh, the Christian teacher of nonviolence, Walter Wink. And he has quite the list of them, but I'll talk just a little bit about the one about debt and about the call when someone is, um, when Jesus said, if someone asks for your garment, you not only give them your cloak, but your, but your tunic as well. And this, and this, in case you don't know, you know, cloak and tunic in, amongst the masses, amongst the general people, this is a two-item of clothing community. There's no under the tunic, right? You have a cloak, you have a tunic, and that is all you got. But what's he doing with this? Unfortunately, the reality of this time in the Roman imperial day and policy was the amount of debt incurred and enforced upon the people because they were taxed very heavily. Um, and you couldn't necessarily relinquish, they couldn't make a peasant relinquish their land because land was passed down from generations, but they could enact a tax that would impoverish them deeply and would force people to give up their land in that way. Sound familiar? Hmm. Taxes, an economic system such that people could not have property and wealth and power of their own. Not just 2,000 years ago, kids. It's so advanced in this time. And the people who felt that the greatest were, of course, the most impoverished. So you have the folks who are called before the debt collector. And they could give up. They could be asked to give up their outer garment, but they have it back when they, at night so they could have something to sleep with. But here is Jesus. Here is Jesus saying, if anyone's going to sue you, then don't just give them the one thing they're asking for, give it all. Because in this time, in this time, it was more, seeing somebody naked was more shameful for the person witnessing it than for the person who had nothing on. So in removing everything and handing it over, you're actually, they are actually covering the debtor in shame. They're making the debtor more uncomfortable. I have that a little hard to believe, but I'm going to go with it right now. And so here's the tables turned on the creditor. And the person in debt had no hope. They had no hope of winning this. The law was entirely in the creditor's favor. But here is this poor person who has transcended this attempt to humiliate. He has risen above the shame and has registered a fabulous, stunning protest against the system that put him there in the first place. You want my robe that says, tear, take everything. Take it all. You've got all except my body. Now what are you going to do? 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Imagine. Imagine the person then, the debtor Lynn, leaving the court in the birthday suit and friends and neighbors saying, what's going on? And the debtor explains, and then the procession that follows is more like the victory parade than the walk of shame. This is guerrilla theater. This is subverting the system. Now, I recognize we might not be ready to do such a protest out in the world. I recognize that as we're going forth and figuring out what, how to take the lessons from what Jesus is offering and put them into practice, that sometimes we don't actually know what to do. We've got this wise person in Jesus, he's doing great, but what do we do now, today? And that it's not just an easy yes to find a way to tweak and defy and resist what is harming us. The poem, I want to offer a piece of poem from the rabbi Rachel Berenblatt called Ready, about the flight of the Hebrews from Egypt as they sought to escape their enslavement. From the book of Exodus, So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls wrapped in their cloaks upon their shoulders. And the section of the poem reads, you'll need to travel light, take what you can carry, a book, a poem, a battered tin cup, your child strapped to your chest, clutching your necklace in one hot possessive fist. So the dough isn't ready, so your heart isn't ready, so you haven't said goodbye to the places you hid as a child, to the friends who aren't interested in the journey, to the graves you've tended. But if you wait until you feel truly ready, you may never take the leap at all, and infinity is calling you forth out of this birth canal and into the future's wide expanse. Jesus had all these powerful stories of flipping perception, subverting expectations. But but he wasn't ready when he entered Jerusalem. I mean, it was a triumph. It was a wonderful moment. But he wasn't ready to make his deepest commitment until later in the week, that Monday, Thursday, after he had eaten with his disciples and he was alone and abandoned and heartbroken in the garden. This is part of the the conundrum, the puzzlement of what to do with Easter, what to do with all the teachings of Jesus. How do we make sense of this and bring it into our lives, knowing that we're not ready to in any one moment, that we get surprised by when we have to, when we must encounter something we don't expect. The women at the tomb, for example, when we're in our most difficult moment, what shall we do? So we've returned to the scripture story again and again, but not alone, we do so in company. Each of us has to make our own choice, but we don't have to do it by ourselves. We have among us the mutual potential of creative minds and searching hearts, even when, especially when, we are nervous and disrupted and unsure. 
And we do so in this gathering, hoping to be humble enough to hear what is broken, to hear what is hard to hear. I don't observe Lent or many of the specific practices of Holy Week, Palm Sunday or Monday, Thursday or Good Friday. I recognize, but I don't always necessarily dig deep into the triumphant entry, the Last Supper with the disciples, the arrest in the garden, the torture, the crucifixion, or the rising of Christ. Because in my growing up in Unitarian Universalism, for me it was really about the teachings. But but that flipping the tables on life and death itself, that is something. That is something, and it takes time. The period of time of Lent reminds me of the value of spending enough time in the moment to understand where to go, how to make a commitment, how to show up, even when not feeling ready. How we navigate the human struggle with the greatest questions of life and death and meaning, how long it takes us to endure in fear and despair and powerlessness even, even when we have to face the death of what we value most, what we hold closest to us, but how we also keep going, what gives us hope when we face the death of everything at times, the end of life itself, how bewildered and frightened we can be like the women when they found that open tomb and the disappearance of their beloved teacher's body. They had been mourning and they had prepared a final act of love. But what they find is not death and burial and also not a merely return to life because that would be startling enough. They find this other path. They find this moment of existential liminality and chaos. No wonder they were bewildered. But from there, well, okay, first they run screaming from the tomb because, yeah, no surprise. But then they also go on the path of how to be willing and open and figure out the lifting of the self and other. They are given an answer that flips expectations as their teacher had shown them all along. And they find a way to trust in that capacity, not just what he said, but their own. We do this. We do this in every given moment. Just some of the ways that we might do this in subverting expectations in our own lives of the medical, metaphorical flipping the tables, not just for the sake of drama, but to offer a radical response to the world, to say it is important to witness to the human right of existence as we are in all our colors and shapes and forms. We are going to say yes to access for health care. We are going to say yes to loving and cherishing the earth. That can be a radical place to come from these days, am I right? We are going to say we're okay with being humble and resist feeling insecure. We are going to say yes to creating a beloved community. 
Here's one of Jesus' great paradoxes was the bringing of the kingdom of heaven on earth. A kingdom that was in this time, this present moment, not just a future moment that you might be looking forward to, but now and among us if we perceive and act on it. Dr. King said the same, the creation of the beloved community. And we do so, we do so with the same spirit of tweaking from this great teacher with humor and play and creativity because the empire can't take a joke. But it gives us life. And use the system that is before us to do so. We can live in solidarity with each other, not fear of the other or, or fear that those of us with privilege could, could lose if we're dismantled or embarrassed, if we hurt ourselves or others, if we just fail. I can remember again the accounts of Jesus messing with the system. In that two-garment world, we give up both and be naked and simply there. Mm -hmm. We can be present and accounted for in so many ways well beyond any one Easter. So let us live into, let us live into that subversion of the world for the sake of all our well-being. Amen.